0: their children's christmas program. Also, if you have small children or you want to take advantage of our nursery now is a perfect time to take advantage of that. We have quality child care for all ages and just want to let you be aware of that. The rest of you can open your bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> If excuse me this morning, I I woke up with a little bit of a cough, and so hopefully it, it's not distracting this morning. When I mention the names Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, and Ted Haggard, what immediately pops into your mind? Ministers who failed morally, lost their ministries, lost their reputations, and basically failed when it came to shepherding God's flock. In 1987, Jim Baker resigned amid allegations of an affair with his secretary, Jessica Hahn. You probably remember back in the 80s, he was sent to prison later on for charges of racketeering and tax evasion and fraud. Thankfully, today he has repented. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong, He has renounced the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and and supposedly he has repented of that lifestyle. Jimmy Swaggart, 1988, that tearful speech where tears streamed down his face, and he confessed these shenanigans with the Louisiana prostitute. And the Assembly of God God denomination basically said, you can't get back into the pulpit. He defied their orders, and three months later, he went back into the pulpit to preach because he said, if I don't return to the pulpit, millions of people will go to hell. He was pulled over in 1991 in California again with a prostitute. Ted Haggard, 2007, I don't need to say much about that. It's close to home because it happened here in Colorado. A male prostitute exposed him, and he resigned from... New Life Church, and who knows where Ted Haggard is today. I think he has a church in Colorado Springs. Now, I could give a list of names of people who have fallen. But what about you? Or what about me? Before we cast stones at pastors who have failed morally, let me ask you a very simple question this morning. Is any Christian immune to falling flat on their face and disgracing themselves and reaping devastating consequences? Are we immune from falling into sin from time to time? Think about some of the great leaders in the Bible. Think about Moses. He struck the rock in anger and was barred entrance into the promised land. Think about David. David goes out one afternoon, looks down, and sees a bathing beauty named Bathsheba. And he commits adultery and later on has her husband, Uriah, murdered. Or think about Solomon. Solomon started out so great, didn't he? He was a man of wisdom, extreme wisdom. He built the temple, but then at the end of his life, it said he was led astray by his 700 wives and 300 concubines. Try to keep a 1,000 women happy, I don't know how he did it but it said they led his heart away from the Lord. Or think about Peter, who denied Christ three times. And then when that rooster crowed on the third time, that stinging pain in his gut, because he knew he had fallen. Let me ask the question again. Can solid Christians, from time to time, fall into seasons of serious sin and from that reap some devastating consequences. We have to say yes. We see it scripturally and we know it by experience. Now this does not mean that somehow a Christian loses his or her salvation. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We are eternally secure in Christ. What it does mean then is that Christians can keep their eyes off of Jesus as we've been singing about this morning and they can walk a path where God may discipline them to bring them back to where he wants them to be and God may allow consequences to be very devastating in the life of a believer. Have you heard the joke about the drunken sailor? I'm not going to tell you that joke because I don't know it. But I do know in our text this morning we, we, we run into a drunken sailor. Noah, the drunken sailor. Now, it's kind of shocking when you think about what we've seen so far in Noah's life. What have we've seen so far about Noah? He was a righteous man. He walked humbly with God. He did everything God had commanded him to do. He obeyed with active obedience. He, he, he was a man of God. And then in this, this one moment of failure, he gets drunk. So here's our big idea for this morning. And I think this message comes with a warning to those of us who are believers this morning. Here's the message. Here's the big issue. No Christian is beyond the possibility of falling into sin, grievous sin. But I don't want to leave it there. (laughs) And yet, God's grace covers a multitude of sins. No Christian here this morning is immune to the potentiality or to the possibility of falling into some grievous sin. If you think you're immune, if you think it will not happen to you, if you think that would never happen to me, that happens to other people, but not me, listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12-13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Take heed lest you fall. So let's pick up our story in Genesis chapter 9. Noah and his family spent 150 days on the seas, the high seas, the really high seas. And they emerge out of the ark. And as we looked at last week, Noah builds an altar and has a burnt offering on the altar representing Christ as the substitutionary atonement. And everything's going great. And then we pick up in verse 18 of chapter 9. So let's read the rest of chapter 9, verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these The people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, from this text, I want us to see three things this morning. The first two are pretty easy. The last one's a little difficult. The first thing I want us to see is Noah's sin. Second thing I want us to see is Ham's two sins. And the last thing I want us to see is the fallout. What's the theological fallout? What's the consequences of what has happened So let's look at the first issue. The first issue is Noah's sin. But but, but there's something underlying this story that we haven't visited in a while. You remember Genesis 3.15? It's the theme, right? Genesis 3.15. The seed or the offspring of the woman is going to be at constant warfare with Satan. So here's the question that we have to to ask. How is this godly seed going to manifest itself? As we come off of the ark... Which son is going to emerge as the godly seed? And which son is going to emerge as the follower of Satan? And how are these two seeds going to be at war? Because you see it continuing here with these brothers. So let's first look at Noah's sin. Verses 18 through 21. Noah almost becomes like a second Adam. What does he do? He drinks from the fruit and gets naked. What did Adam do? He ate of the fruit and he was naked. Noah gets drunk, goes into his tent and basically exposes himself. He's a man of the soil. He's the first to probably learn to make grapes and wine. He gets drunk. Now, let me just say this very clearly. The scripture does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol in moderation. I am not one of those pastors that's going to legalistically stand up here and say, you cannot drink. I don't think that you can find a passage of Scripture that teaches that in its totality to say that you should not drink. Now, what I will say is this. The Scripture is very clear on this. Getting drunk, alcoholism, or abusing alcohol is a sin that is condemned in the Scripture. Noah gets drunk, He lays uncovered in his tent. He's so inebriated that basically he passes out without any clothes on. Listen to what the Proverbs says about wine and strong drink and drunkenness and being led astray by alcoholism. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it it is not wise. If you're led astray by drink it's not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Kind of a a rhetorical question here. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Okay, let's answer the question, the, the, the writer of Proverbs. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I do not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's pretty scary. Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. Now this is the sin of actually getting somebody else drunk so that you can take advantage of them in a sexual type of way. So what does alcohol do? Again, I'm not against drinking per se. I personally do not drink. The reason I do not drink is Is because as pastor, there's too many people in my flock that I know have struggled with alcohol. I personally have seen my family torn apart by alcohol. So Don and I have made it a conviction that we do not drink alcohol. But we will not say to those in the church that you can't do that because that's our conviction. What we will say is that don't get drunk because that is a sin. But what does alcohol do? It's a depressant. It affects your brain and it makes you do weird things and lose judgment and do things that you probably would have never done if you would have been sober. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The word debauchery, we don't use that word much in our culture. What it really means is reckless indulgence. You're just reckless. You're going you're to go into any type of activity that you can think of because your mind has been impaired by alcohol that you're going to do all these crazy things. You're going to lead into debauchery. And Paul says, don't get drunk. Command, don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, my extended family has been torn apart by alcoholism. And it grieves me to see the trail of destruction that's left its wake in my extended family. On the flip side, I know many of you in this room who have awesome testimonies of how God has delivered you from alcohol and drug addiction. And we praise God for his grace. And so the first thing we see here is in a moment of weakness, Noah gets drunk. And he lays naked in his tent. But let's secondly look at the two sins of Ham. Now, you may say, well, what are the two sins of Ham? Well, let's just read verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. Now, there's two sins there. We'll, we'll explore these in just a moment. He saw his father's nakedness and he told his brothers. The text just tells us there are two things there. Now, throughout both Jewish But his history and Christian circles throughout the years, there have been many options, I guess you'd say, of of what Ham actually did to Noah. There have been some very colorful things that Jewish historians and Christian historians have said. Some say that, well, what Ham did was he castrated Noah, so he couldn't have any more children. Some say that he sexually, homosexually molested Noah. Noah some say that he actually slept with Noah's wife and committed incest the problem is the text does not say that you can't go there all you have in the text is that he saw and he told but let me just tell you the first sin here it's in the Hebrew word for saw he saw his father's nakedness this is homosexual voyeurism The word saw in the Hebrew language there does not mean just a casual glance. It means a longing look, a thoroughgoing look, a searching look. He didn't just look in at his dad. He stayed and he looked. It was voyeurism. Now, what is voyeurism? Voyeurism is looking at something sexual in order to get gratification over a long period of time. You're looking at something for gratification, not just a casual glance. Let's just stop and discuss Another sin. I'm picking on sins this morning. The first sin is drunkenness. Let's pick on another sin. Pornography. That's what voyeurism is. Pornography is simply voyeurism. It's looking longingly for a long period of time at something sexual in order to get gratification. What Ham did with his father is what many people do when they look at pornography. Let me give you some statistics. The Internet Filter Review has given these statistics about pornography. The average number of pornographic emails received by each user per day, 4.5. Number of pornographic sites on the internet, which are approximately 12% of all websites, 4.2 million. Daily internet searches for pornographic terms, 68 million. Individual visitors to pornographic websites each month, 72 million. Pornographic emails sent each day, $2.5 billion. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s, you had to get a friend sneak into 7-Eleven and maybe buy you a Playboy. But nowadays, with smartphones and tablets, with a click of a mouse or a swipe of a finger, anybody can have access to the most lurid stuff around the world. It is like a tinderbox in the hand of children, ready to inflame into fire. So let me just say a word to parents. Do not be naive and suckered by your children. We have internet filters on our laptops. On our home computer, we have Net Nanny. On iPads and iPhones, we have internet filter software. I do not want my son who has an iPhone or our family that has an iPad to be able to see those things. So parents, do it. And if you have questions on how to do it, come and talk to me. But you need to put internet filters. Don't just be naive and say, well, my child would never look at that stuff. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and I'm a red-blooded American male. So don't tell me that your child's not going to look at that stuff. We need to make sure that we put filters And so the first sin of Ham here is is voyeurism. And this is a kind of a foreshadowing of what the nation of Canaan was going to be. Because who comes from Ham's lineage? Canaan. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But who are the Canaanites? What were the Canaanites known for? The Canaanites, the, 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 the... the nation that was in the promised land that, that Israel had to go wipe out, they were known for their sexual immorality. Listen to what Leviticus says about the Canaanites, that those that lived in the land of Israel. Leviticus eighteen twenty seven through 28, for the people of the land, speaking of the Canaanites, who were before you, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the other nations that was before you. The Canaanites were so wicked that it almost said the land vomited them out. And so Ham here's sin of voyeurism, of pornography, of sexual morality, whatever you want to call it, is a foreshadowing of what the nation that would come from him would be all about. The Canaanites would be about sexual immorality, idolatry, and they would always be trying to lead the Israelites astray. Sexual immorality, pornography, voyeurism, whatever you want to call it, always leads to destruction. Always leads to guilt. Always leads to ruin. Now, let's look at the second sin, because you may think that's the only sin Ham did. What's the second thing that Ham does? What does the text say? Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told, told his two brothers. What he's doing, here's the second sin he's celebrating someone else's failure with juicy gossip. Ah, my dad, who's so awesome. He's the the preacher of righteousness, and he's Noah. I've caught him in a moment of weakness. I've caught him in vulnerability. Look at him. He's naked. He's drunk. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to celebrate his failure with my brothers and dishonor my father and make fun of my father and totally just disregard his reputation. I'm going to get glee, and, and I'm sure that Ham walks out with this big grin on his face. Hey, guys, let me tell you what I just saw. And he gets excited about the juicy gossip of somebody else's downfall, especially his father. If this had been a few hundred years later, under the law of Moses, Ham would have been stoned because he's dishonoring his parents, the fifth commandment. He's making fun of his dad. And not so much just his dad, but the fact that his dad was a righteous man. Well, we love it when the righteous fall. We love it when somebody we looks up to falls, and the first thing we want to do is we want to juicily, sadistically, gleefully relish the fact that they've sinned. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says. The only thing that is worse than committing a specific sin is the devilish delight in finding out and reveling in that sin in others. Now, the two brothers, Shem and Japheth, what do they do? they walk backwards they put the cloak over their eyes and they they don't even they don't dishonor their father they don't look at their father they respect their father now we're not we're not excusing what noah did they're just honoring their father at his most vulnerable position of weakness they don't take advantage of him they honor him and they cover him up now what are these three destructive sins we've looked at so far alcoholism drunkenness Pornography, voyeurism, and gossip. And let me just say, these are alive and well in Christians. I can't tell you how many men over the years I've counseled who struggle with pornography. And if statistics are true, the majority of men in this room today, and possibly women, struggle in some way with pornography if statistics are true. And so let me just say, men, if you need help, seek the help. Be accountable. Don't be so prideful that you carry this by yourself, but share it with somebody, whether it's with me or whether it's somebody that's trusted. Don't walk this path alone, because in the end, it's going to lead to destruction. For others of you, you may say, you know, my struggle's not pornography, but your struggle may be gossip. You just love to hear about the failure of others. And your eyes light up when the gossip starts and somebody has a downfall or somebody sins, and you're so, you just love to talk about others, to gossip about others, to make fun of others. You just relish that, and you're blind to your own sin. And anytime the gossip comes, you get this sadistic twinkle in your eye. Oh, wow, let's talk about the person that's failed. Listen to the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A lot of us have logs in our eyes, and we're looking at specks in our brother's eyes. Now, There may be others here that don't struggle with pornography. You don't struggle with gossip. But maybe you struggle with substance abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction. It's a painful habit that's enslaving you and destroying you. And let me just say this to you. Please get help. Go to rehab if you need to go to rehab. Go to AA if you need to go to AA. Come talk to me if you need to talk to me. Don't walk this path alone. Too many Christians walk the path alone of alcohol and substance abuse, of pornography, and the church is here to help. Listen to me. If you come to me with your problems, the last thing I'm going to do is condemn you. I'm going to wrap my arms around you and say, let's walk through this together. There are many people that are struggling with these things, and only the gospel can deliver you. From these things, now we've seen Noah's sin, not our, our drunkenness. We've seen Ham's two sins, voyeurism and gossip. And now we come to the third section of the text, which is a real, really kind of difficult. I don't have an answer for it. I, I've studied and studied, and I really don't have an answer. It's really a theological fallout from this, and it really goes back to Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman. Satan, how they're going to play out. So so let's look here. Verse 24, "When, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Now, you should be surprised here. Who's cursed? Canaan is cursed, not Ham. Who did the sin? Ham. You'd expect that Noah would say, Ham, you're cursed. But instead, he curses one of Ham's sons, which is a difficult issue to to wrap our minds around. Why, Why isn't Ham accountable for what he did? Why is his son the one that's cursed? This is the second time a person is cursed in the Bible so far. Cain was the first, and God pronounced the curse on Cain. Now you have Noah, a person pronouncing a curse on another person, on Canaan. So let's just ask two difficult questions of this. Why is Canaan cursed when it was the sin of Ham? Well, I really don't have a good answer. I'm not really sure how to answer it. All I know is it's in the Bible. And we take it at face value. But I do know this. There's a biblical principle, whether we like it or not, that the sins of the Father are visited upon the children, even to the third or fourth generation. Whether we like it or not, that's a biblical principle. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 through 6. In the middle of the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's a biblical principle. It could be that God is showing mercy on Ham by not cursing Ham and only cursing one of his four sons, Canaan. We really don't know why Canaan is cursed and not Ham, but we do know the outcome. What does it say? He shall be a servant of servants to his brothers. Literal Hebrew, he will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He will be a servant. Now, this leads to our second question. What does this not mean? I don't know if you're familiar with an ancient, maybe the past two or three hundred years interpretation of the curse of Canaan. There are some, during the age of slavery, in the 1700s and the 1800s and even up to modern day, that would say, Canaan was cursed because he was a black man, and thus his lot in life is to be a slave and to be subjugated. And they use this as a proof text for racial prejudice and even for slavery. Let me just say this loud and clear. This has nothing to do with race, ethnicity, or skin color. This has to do with sin, the sin that Ham did. It has to do with this disobedience. This is not a proof text for racial prejudice. This is not a proof text for slavery. This is not a proof text for subjugation of people that have a different skin color. And there are some people that say, look, there's biblical biblical warrant here for prejudice because Canaan was black, and therefore black people can be slaves. Nowhere in that text does it say that. Now, we do know spiritually the descendants of Ham, spiritually were the enemies of God's people. Who were the four main descendants from Ham? The Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. Read your Old Testament and you will find those are the four major enemies of Israel, of God's people. So it's a spiritual type of issue here. But let me just talk about race for a moment. We talk about the race wars and what what race are you? Do you realize there's only one race? It's called the human race. And we are all connected back to Adam. So if you want Ham to be your dad or Shem to be your dad or Japheth to be your dad or Noah to be your dad or Adam to be your dad, yes, we're all connected. And so let me just say this loud and clear. There is no room in the Christian life for racial prejudice, for bigotry, for slavery, or any types of subjugation of people based upon the color of their skin or ethnicity. It's ungodly and it's wicked. Now, the second thing we see here, a little bit easier to understand, Shem is blessed. Verse 26, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. So Shem here becomes the elect seed of the promise. Who comes from Shem? As we'll see, probably after the first of the year, Abraham. The Israelites, And eventually, Jesus comes from the line of Shem. So as you emerge from the ark, Canaan emerges as those that are going to align themselves with the the serpent. Shem is emerging as the godly seed through whom Abraham and then Israel, and then eventually Jesus will come. And so Shem is blessed. But then thirdly, Japheth. It doesn't say Japheth is cursed, and it doesn't say Japheth is blessed. It just says Japheth is enlarged. Which is a play on word. That's what Japheth means, enlarged. And as you see throughout history, those that come from Japheth are the nations that have been the largest and most influential nations on the planet. Who comes from Japheth? Rome, Greece, Europe, and some people even argue America come from Japheth. So let me ask you a question Who was the greatest Shemite to ever live? Was it Abraham? Was it David? Was it Moses? Was it Elijah? It was Jesus. Jesus is the greatest Shemite to ever live. He's in the lineage of Shem. So here's the beauty of the gospel this morning. God saves sinners. Let me just say it loud and clear. God saves drunks. God saves those that are engaged in pornography. God saves those who are gossips. God saves sinners. I'd quit my job if I couldn't say that every week. That God saves sinners. Listen to a very powerful verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through Paul's writing to Corinth. Those of you that come to my Wednesday night class, we've been looking at this the past few weeks. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral... He does not use verbs to describe sin. He uses nouns, which tells you something. The more you commit sin, the more it becomes your identity of who you are. The more that you continue in sin, the more it becomes a part of who you are. Now, yes, sins condemn, but sins left unrepented lead to who you eventually are. But notice what Paul says. That's what some of you, what? Were. In the original language, in the Greek text there. It's in a tense that's called the imperfect tense, which means continuous action in the past tense. So you can translate it like this. This is what some of you habitually used to do as a lifestyle. You continually did this in the past as a lifestyle. It was habitual. It was who you were. But, and there's a very strong but. It's an adversative but they're in the scripture. But something has happened to you. Three things, Paul says, have happened to you. You were washed. This speaks of the cleansing and the regeneration that comes when God comes and reborns you and gives you a new identity. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian here, you're a new person. Titus 3-4-5, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've got a new identity. We are new creations in Christ. That is not who we are anymore. Secondly, Paul says we've been sanctified. In other words, we now have the power to walk in new behavior. We have the power to have new conduct. We have the power and the grace to be able to walk in holiness. Listen to what Titus 2, 11 through 12 says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What's training us? The grace. God's grace is training us or teaching us to renounce, that means say no, to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self right self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age god's grace teaches you to say no and you've also been justified this refers to our new position our new standing god looks down upon us because of christ and we're now not guilty so we've been washed we've been cleansed we've been sanctified we've been justified listen to romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus So Jesus saves the worst of sinners. I got a newsflash for you. If you've come to this place and you think you're a really bad person, welcome. Welcome. Because God loves to save people just like you and just like me that acknowledge that we're sinners. But not only does God just save people from the line of Shem, but God saves Canaanites and God saves Japhethites And God saves those from Ham. Do we see evidence of a Canaanite being saved in the Bible? Rahab, the prostitute. What does this tell you about the gospel? God loves to save immoral pagan prostitutes out of their sin. Praise the Lord. Do we see evidence of a descendant of Ham being saved in the Bible? Yes, the Ethiopian eunuch was saved. Shows us that God has love for an outcast religious man who, who, who's highly religious, but an outcast. He's a black man, and God can save him. Do we see evidence of a descendant of Japheth being saved in the Bible? The Gentile Cornelius, who was a Roman. God can save a middle class white guy who's the worst of sinners. Here's the issue the gospel transcends race, color, ethnicity, and it gets to the real issue that all of us deal with regardless of skin color, and that is our own personal sin against a holy God. That's the issue. The gospel breaks down all color barriers, all ethnic barriers. All, the only thing that you need to come with this morning is say, I'm a sinner and I'll acknowledge that sin and own up to that sin and Jesus Christ will save you from your sin. So here's the warning and here's the good news. Here's the good news. There is no sin here so great that God can't forgive. There's no sin here so great that God cannot forgive. His love covers a multitude of sins. And yet, there's a warning. If you are saved, there's not one person in this room that's immune to falling. There's not one person in this room that says, that's never going to happen to me. Don't be like Noah. Don't think, I'm never going to tank like Noah. Don't be prideful. Don't flirt with sin. Don't get to that point where you say, you know what? It's never going to happen to me. Something happened to Noah. He took his eyes off Jesus for a period of time, and he fell into sin. Remember the first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark? He worshiped. He built an altar of sacrifice. He put a burnt offering on there he pictured for his family the substitutionary atonement of jesus christ on the cross his eyes were fixed upon jesus and the cross and somewhere along the way he took his eyes off the cross but here's the beauty of noah even though he's physically laying naked in his tent as one who's saved he's still covered in the righteousness of christ there's a theology out there that says you know what noah noah blew it noah got drunk that's the end He got drunk, he lost his salvation, he lost his rewards in heaven, he's toast, he's gone, there's no hope for Noah, he lost it. Let me just tell you, what have we seen so far? God saved Noah by grace. God shut him into the ark by grace. God sustained him for 150 days on the floodwaters by grace. Do you think that one haphazard, drunken stupor is going to get him out of God's grace? God's grace is big even in his nakedness he's still covered by the blood of Christ remember what God did back in Genesis chapter 3 he covered Adam and Eve's nakedness here's my plea to you this morning and this is to brothers and sisters in Christ we are prone to wander we're prone to wander we're prone to veer off into sin and we're prone to get prideful and think it could never happen to me. And there may be many of you here this morning that are flirting with alcohol, you're flirting with pornography, you're flirting with sexual sin, you're flirting with gossip and before you know it, you're gonna turn around and wonder what in the world Let me read to you the words of one of my favorite hymns. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust In Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And then the last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand would you stand on the solid rock of Christ this morning? There's a lot of sweet frames out there that you can prop yourself up on. And it's like sinking sand. The only one that's going to sustain you in your salvation and sustain you to the end is the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And he loves to save sinners. Would you trust in him this morning? Let me ask you to bow your heads. it's a very personal message to many this morning because there may be many in this room who are struggling with these issues and the word to you this morning is trust in Jesus as a Christian trust in Jesus put your hope on Jesus on Christ the solid rock put your stand All the ground is sinking sand. One of the greatest things that we can do this morning as an act of worship to our holy God is to respond to the word of God with repentance. It would be a shame to have gone through another Sunday and not repent. To not confess. To not cry out to our Savior for help. It's okay to cry for help. Don't be so proud that you think that you don't need Jesus or that you can do this on your own. Take advantage of these moments that we have this morning as the body of Christ gathered to cry out to Jesus. And I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. I don't, I don't necessarily need you to walk forward because everybody's gonna think, man, he must be struggling with pornography. Or he's, he's a drunk. I mean, if God leads you to come up front as we sing, that's, that's perfectly fine. And we'd love for you to come up here and pray with you. My main concern is whether you walk up front or whether you do it at your seat, that you do business with Jesus Christ. And you go to him. And you confess your sin to him. And you ask him to cleanse you. And you claim the promise that that's what some of you were. But you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit. We want to be a safe place here at Emmanuel for those that struggle with sin. We're not going to condemn you. We want to love you. We may speak straight to you. We may hold you accountable and we may be uh, tough love, but we'd have it no other way because that's what Jesus does with us. But we want it to be a safe place. So spend some time in prayer this morning, silently, just asking the Lord to search your heart and how you need to respond this morning to this message. Spend some time in prayer. We are in awe that you would love us. We are in awe that you would save us. We are in awe that you would reach down from the glories of heaven and send Jesus Christ to come in the flesh to identify with us in every way yet be without sin. And we are in awe, Jesus, that you would die on the cross bearing the very sins that we are talking about this morning. And Father, when we look to the cross and we see your son hanging there on that cross, we realize that it's our sins that put him there. And we realized the price that was paid for us. So, Father, my prayer this morning is that nobody would leave this place without knowing that Jesus Christ stands ready to save all sinners who come. No matter what the sin is, Jesus, you save sinners. Lord, if there are men in this room and maybe even women too that are struggling with pornography, would you deliver them this morning to the power of the gospel? Father, if there are those that are struggling with substance addiction and alcoholism and drug abuse, Father, would you deliver them from that this morning? And we tend to pick on those big sins like sexual morality and drunkenness, but Father, if there are those that are struggling with gossip, which is just as bad, would you deliver those that are gossips this morning? Through the power of your cross, through the power of your blood, we want to be a people that turn our eyes on Jesus. As the praise team begins to play, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I want us just to have a time, an extended time for you as you're seated, just to continue to pray. And the praise team will sing the song and we'll just spend time in prayer.